and uh, we'll be reading from verse 35 into chapter 10, and then all the way down to verse 15. So Matthew chapter 9, um, beginning in verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thordaeus, Simon, the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick Raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Amen. I've been a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ since I was 10. That's 56 years. Uh, in ministry, I have believed that the Bible is to be utterly central because it is the absolute word of God to our lives. I believe that the gospel is uh, the means by which God glorifies himself and saves us so that we learn to be disciples of his son, the Lord Jesus. And it is that gospel which enables us to live. It is the power of God to salvation. I came here in 1992. I'm not trying to reminisce. Okay, we will. No, we won't. Um, and that's what I believed. And that's what I still believe today. And there is no reason to change that. Because the Christian life is all about Jesus. 
And when we start with Jesus, then we're on safe ground. Start anywhere else, you'll end up at the wrong conclusions. And even worse. So I want to take you to Matthew chapter 9, uh, the end of, end of that chapter, into chapter 10, and uh, look at the mission-minded Jesus. The mission-minded Jesus. Walter Rosenberg, later to become known as Rudolf Verber, was a man with a very serious mission indeed. His message had to be heard by the whole world. It was a matter of life and death that the truth be told. You see, Walter was a Jew. And Walter was in Auschwitz. And he witnessed terrible events of incredible killing. He saw horrible deception that pretended to be saving the arrivals, but in effect was death, one form or another. And therefore, Walter determined in himself that he would escape from Auschwitz, and he would tell the world, the democracies of the world, the truth. And in fact, he actually did escape. Yet his hardest experience, or one of them, in Auschwitz was Camp B. Here, 6,000 Jews were having a good time. Good conditions, nice clothes, wholesome food, cultural entertainment, educational development. And Camp B was indifferent to the message that Jewish people were dying by their thousands in Auschwitz. Because everything was nice. In reality, Camp B was a show camp for the Red Cross to continue the deception to the world that there was nothing bad and evil happening in Auschwitz. Within six months, all people in Camp B were dead. And another 6,000 came in. Jesus is on his father's mission here in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9. He's already been on that mission for much longer than that. He is the sent one into the world. Jesus is the king of love who comes to recognize rescue, got there, sinful people, and bring them into his eternal kingdom. And so we see in this passage, Jesus teaching, healing, delivering, discipling. The impression is that you've got Jesus always on the move. Because he realized and his message was the kingdom has come near and inviting people into his kingdom. Because, let's hear it this evening, to be ruled by Jesus, my friends, is to be saved. To think I can be saved and rule my own life, my way, 
is not to be saved. Before we became Christians, if you are a Christian, you were ruling your life, or at least you thought you were. You were living for you, and I was living for me. And I thought I was saving myself. I was living in freedom, or so I thought. Until the day when Jesus began to move in, in my heart and in your heart, and we suddenly realized that our self-rule was wrong. It was against God. It was against life. It was against eternity. And therefore, had to be repented of. And so Jesus comes into our lives to save us because of his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. You still believe in that, don't you, here? Yes. Good. It's all right here. And now we're ruled. And we're the freest people on the world. Therefore, two things to say. There's a lot of things to say in this passage, but I'm not going to say them all. And so I'm going to leave some gaps. You can work them out for yourself. Number one, Jesus' heart for people. Verses nine, uh, chapter 9.35 through to chapter 10 and verse 4. Jesus' heart for people. How did people, Jesus, see people? Well, he's motivated at the end of chapter 9 as he goes through all these cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds... He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. As he looks at people, he uses an image. He sees them as sheep without a shepherd. He sees them, in other words, in their true need. They're harassed and they're helpless. They think they've got life all together. They think they've got it sorted. But Jesus can see otherwise. One of the things I like to do is to people watch. It's got me into trouble before now, and I have to just own up to that. So be careful how you do it. But how do we see people? And how do we feel as we see them? Jesus saw people in their spiritual, moral, eternal, and physical neediness. And they needed a shepherd out of all that neediness. And he is the shepherd to take us out of all that neediness. Young or old makes no difference. The other day I was in a very busy shopping area. And I saw a little two-year-old girl crossing a busy road more than once, surrounded by towering adults. And yet, she was not harassed or helpless. She was happy and safe, bouncing along, shepherded by granny. You see, when we are ruled and saved, by Jesus, who is the king of love, then there is relative, though I know there is significant happiness. 
and incredible Savior. Because ultimately all our neediness is met by Jesus, spiritually and morally now and relationally now, and physically one day we will all be healed and all be raised from the dead, and we'll live in a new creation in which there is only righteousness and peace. So all the miracles that you see in the Gospels are windows to a new world. Now, we don't all get healed now, supernaturally, I mean. And sometimes we do. Maybe thankful if we do. <laughs> but nonetheless, you see that our neediness is comprehensively met. Jesus has a heart for people. In the darkness we were waiting, without hope, without light, till from heaven you came running. There was mercy in your eyes. Jesus is not indifferent towards us. He's not indifferent to our need. Jesus wants to save us into his best and our perfect good. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should, should not perish, sorry, but, not, but have eternal life. And I don't know you all, so I want to say this to you. Maybe this evening you have to leave yourself ruled and you have to come under the rule of Jesus and be saved forever into his best, which will be your best. Don't think you know what is best for your life, because you don't, and neither do I. And take it, if a 66-year-old man is allowed to say anything these days, then I would like to say, uh, I can say that with good confidence. And I've road-tested Jesus in my own way for 56 years, and I pray there'll be no turning back from that. Jesus' heart for people. And in his compassion, Jesus, in this passage, urges his followers to pray that he, the Lord Jesus, might send out more mission-minded workers, kingdom workers, uh, to have his compassion for the eternal needs of people so Jesus can save more people and rule over more people. And I believe that this is a kind of prayer that will be prayed among you as a fellowship of people. So I'm, I am understanding that and acknowledging it. It should be a prayer that is prayed in every gospel church every single week. Lord, send more people out into your world, into the, into the universal need of people in all nations. That they may hear of you and be saved. Now, that takes different forms in case we're all putting it into one form. <laughs> it may be church planting. It could be personal witness. It could be cross-cultural mission to uh, Japan or somewhere else. Preaching, as I am this evening, or trying to. Maybe planned events, giving a book to a friend, recommending a podcast, doing a course with somebody, reading the Bible with a friend. And do you know something? When you're doing that, that's what Jesus is actually involved in with you. Isn't that good? We're all included. 
Nobody excluded. Aren't you glad not everybody's a 66-year-old preacher in the room? Though I'm glad that Jesus uses 66-year-old preachers or any of us, whatever age. Because we're now in the 21st century, the good news is that we can look way back further than we used to be able to. And we can see that throughout history, that is what Jesus has been doing. He's been sending people out into his harvest, into the entirety of his world, that they may hear about him. Where Christianity is vibrant in our world today, it is reaching out in mission to make Jesus known without shame. Without shame. And therefore, I just to remind you, beginning of chapter 10, that the Lord Jesus calls the whole church into this mission. Now, chapter, chapter 10, verses 1 to 4, is all about the 12 disciples being called. Well, that could let us all off the hook, couldn't it? You know, it's those 12 bobs over there. You know, it's not us here, is it? But it is, isn't it? Because the 12 disciples, though they're to be eyewitnesses of Jesus, and they are actually to be earwitnesses of Jesus, and they are to indeed declare, declare the gospel to their age and their time, which they do, they are doing that foundationally for the whole church. So if we're all included, we're all included. If we're standing on Christ, we're standing on the, on the work of the apostles in relation to explaining Christ, therefore it's all of us. Now he names these 12, and he sends them out. Little did they know... <laughs> It appeals to my humor, but little did they know. As they prayed, Lord, send out workers into your world. And then he turns around and he says, well, there you go, boys. Oh, I didn't sign up for this. Well, it's not my gifting, is it? I'll go and get the donkey. Well, he had to go and fetch a donkey on one occasion. They don't get the option. there's only one Lord. Hmm. Jesus chooses and names these 12. And he in effect is saying to these, these 12 men, you are mine for my mission to make me known. That's your purpose in life. are mine for my mission to make me known. Chris Ryer said this, quote, it is not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world, but that God has a church for his mission in the world. That changes it, doesn't it? Mission was not made for the church. Church was made for the mission. God's mission. And we are most in line, my friends, with God and his mission, when we follow Jesus in proclaiming the good news, doing good works, and discipling followers, we are most in line. Amazing when 
you see those coronation events and you see all those soldiers marching along in line, in step. It's awesome, isn't it? Can't be involved in all of this stuff if you're not in step. And if it's a privilege to be involved in that kind of context, if it is, then how much more privileged for us to be involved with the Lord Jesus in what he's doing in the world. Who said it was boring to be a Christian? Where did that come from? Sorry, not here, I know. but I'm getting too excited, I know. It's Jesus' heart for missions. It's where it's coming from. Aren't you glad if you are a Christian that somebody was involved with Jesus on his mission? That somebody actually told you the gospel, prayed for you that you might become a Christian. You may not have liked it, praying for me, I'm not going to become a Christian. But you have. <laughs> they were involved with Jesus. And look what Jesus did in his kindness. Jesus has a heart for people. Secondly, this may take a little longer, but anyway, we'll keep that on track. Don't worry. Jesus sending his church to do his mission. Chapter, uh, chapter 10, verses 5 through to actually chapter 11. There are two mission movements in this chapter. The immediate mission is to the Jews, 5 to 15. They're to go to the lost sheep uh, of Israel, they're not to go to the Gentiles, they're not to go to the Samaritans, verse 5. That will come later. The second movement of mission, verses 17 uh, to the end of the chapter, is therefore not only including Jews, it still includes Jews, but it now also incorporates Gentiles because Gentiles are mentioned. And so this is what Jesus is doing. And he gives prolonged teaching to them in order that they may do it. It's a long sermon, isn't it? And you're looking at the clock and you're thinking, well, hmm. so let's do three things. Living well on mission, verses 5 to 15. I'm just going to pick out principles. Yes, this is initially towards the Jews and not the Gentiles and the Samaritans. It's not cross-cultural yet, though it will become that. By the end of Matthew chapter 28, it will be international, go into all the world. But it's interesting that they are sent to undeserving people within the Jewish context, regarded as unclean people and people to be avoided. Go to the lost sheep of Israel, verse 6. Heal the ra sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. Well, you're not going to build a kingdom on the basis of this kind of people. Where's the elite? Where's the rich people with all the money? Jesus says to his disciples, freely you have received. In other words, these, these disciples had come into a personal relationship with God, with Jesus, based on his giving, giving to them freely, giving to them at great cost to himself. So therefore, freely 
give the gospel out. I'm preaching the gospel freely to you tonight. Don't care about money. Not interested. I may or may not get paid. It's all right. There's no pressure on that. We give out the gospel freely. Because Jesus Christ, at great cost to himself, has given us salvation. And it didn't cost us a penny. Freely, we have received. Freely give. And they were to do two things in this living well. Because actually teaching is important, but living well, as these these verses show us, are important. Verses 9 to 10, they had to travel light, verses 9 to 10. They were not to acquire gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff for the laborer deserves his food. Now, he's not teaching. If you go on mission today, you can't take a suitcase or even two. That's not the point, is it? We have to travel light. We travel light because there is nothing more important and we mustn't get weighed down by stuff. We're also going to minister to the poor and so we need to be able to identify with the poor. And as these disciples moved around Israel, they were to make themselves vulnerable and show that they too were needy, in need of the help of others. An Ethiopian immigrant came to this country many, many years ago. He is now a pastor in London. He was interviewed at Word Alive. And his experience of doing this, and he had to come to this country uh, for safety reasons, He discovered that this nation was a giving nation, and he was deeply grateful for it, deeply grateful. But then he said something almost within an aside. He said this, but unless you receive from me an immigrant, you have not treated me as a human being. Unless you receive from me, you're not treating me as a human being. He said, therefore, this nation needs to also learn not just to give, but humility. Because he said, in a question, maybe God is calling immigrants like me from Ethiopia into this nation to help you with the gospel mission of making Jesus known to the nations. take humility to believe that, wouldn't it? Living well, you see. Not only were they to live travel light, they were also to live at peace, verse 13. They were to show gratitude to any extended kindness extended. But sometimes there would be hostility. And then in verse 14, their reaction would be just to leave the place, shake the dust from your feet, and move on in mission. It's a nonviolent sign. A nonviolent sign that said to this community, you have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ and his eternal kingdom that is there to meet your neediness. 
And that's a serious thing. But they don't get into revenge. And they don't get into retaliation. And a big nasty fight. Believing it's in the name of Jesus. Because it's not. You can win the argument sometimes, but lose the person. It is serious to reject the king of love. It is serious to be indifferent to the message. It is serious to be camp B, isn't it, spiritually? And justice is coming, verse 15 Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. But we are to live well. And the justice of God coming in the person of the Lord Jesus frees me to go and love people who are hostile to Jesus. Now I have lived that out in small ways. I've always been moaning and complaining in my heart. Why should I move to them? They're the ones that did wrong. And I've only ever had the same answer every single time from the Lord. Love them. Don't excuse what they're doing. No, no. The shaking of the dust is not saying, well, it's okay. You can do whatever you like. There is a sign here, but we can go on loving in the name of Jesus to make him known to a world that needs him, living well. Verses 16 to 25, coping with hostility. Jesus knows what's going to happen. As he moves forward now into the more Gentile mission that will take place, including, though still including the Jews, here is wolves. He's sending people out among People who are like wolves, and wolves are very dangerous things for sheep. And therefore, we need two gospel behaviors, verse 16, to deal with hostility. That's the, that's the character. That's the context. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep, verse 16, in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Wise as servants. There's the character that we need to display when we come under pressure. The original serpent in Eden was sinfully clever as he deceived to death humanity. Satan thought out, how can I win in all my craftiness? And we need to be wise. We need to be understanding humanity. We need to outthink them. We need to outlive them. We can't go into sinful scheming or wrong tactics. We're on, we're on mission under Jesus and for Jesus. But let's wise up as we relate to people. Because there are just some things that are not helpful in our relationships with people. We're not thinking how to live. They're always thinking how to live, aren't they? Aren't they? Yes, they are. All the time. I had a conversation with our neighbor today. She's thinking how to live, how to get the guttering done in her, her house and all kinds of other things she's got scheming going on. 
She's thinking all the time. But we're to be as wise as servants under Jesus. But we're also to be as innocent as doves. There is to be nothing shady in our witness. There is to be a transparent purity that displays Jesus the truth. Verse 17 says, yes, there will be persecution. There will be Jewish flogging in synagogues. And then there will be, in verse 18, you'll be dragged towards Gentile kings and rulers. And you're to be a witness for the Lord Jesus in that context. And the temptation would maybe to compromise, maybe to uh, make a deal. Innocent as doves. The followers of the Lord Jesus. He is our master, and therefore we should expect the same treatment from the world, verses 24 to 25, as he got from the world. Coping with hostility. And I think that's kind of removed from me, isn't it? I prepared this sermon sitting in my conservatory, and having a a nice drink of coffee and a a, a lovely CD playing in the background, you know? (laughs) Persecution. What a joke. Well, my friends, maybe you are experiencing some some kind of hostility, so I better be careful there, haven't I? Your master went through it. We're to follow him. You see, starting with Jesus doesn't take the hostility away. It just helps you know how to negotiate the hostility. And finally, dealing with the fear factor, verses 26 to 39. Well, I can't do all of this, can I? But we are told in verses 26 to 30 that we are to fear God because God cares for us. And then, verses 31 to 39, we're to focus on Jesus and acknowledge Him. And as we focus on Jesus and acknowledge him, even though, it, though we feel fear in our hearts, he will keep on mentioning us to the Father, and then one day he will joyfully present us to the Father and say, there they are, Father, they belong to us. Because they always acknowledged us. Now, sometimes I didn't acknowledge the Lord Jesus. I know the guilt of that, so do you. But the trend of my life but to at least want to acknowledge Jesus. What's happening in heaven right now with regard to me? Let's go to me. Oh, there's Morris being faithful in Hoylake Evangelical Church. When Hugh was standing here, I assume it was you this morning, Hugh, it was going your way. That's all right, isn't it? He's truly one of ours. The gospel is good news, my friends. It creates problems. Jesus will allude to that by talking about the family being divided. I haven't got time to go into the detail. But Jesus is very realistic about his mission. We cannot always live at peace with everybody. We want to relate well. We want to think 
well of people. We want to be friends with people. Of course, we must do all of those things, and we must be understanding churches, receiving people as best we can. But let's be absolutely certain that when we come under the Lordship of Christ, and when other people come under the Lordship of Christ, there are people who are around them in their families and in the community who are not under the Lordship of Jesus. And there will be conflict and clash on that. And then there's a choice. Says Jesus, verse 37. Who will you love more? Will you love me? Or will you love worldly acceptance? As I finish now, and I am finishing here. Whoever does not take up their cross, says Jesus, and follow me is not worthy of me. And anyone who finds his life will lose it. And anyone who loses his life because of me will find it. See, when I'm faced with the pressure, do I, do I save my life in self-interest, but ultimately I lose it? Or do I lose it in the sense that maybe people walk away from me or people give me a hard time, but I save it? forever. So how does this work? How does this work in people who are not Christians? And how does this work in your life and my life as we go on mission and tell people about Jesus? I tell you one story and we're done. Rachel Gilson is a same-sex attracted person. She'd had many sexual relationships of a passing nature. But then she entered into a deep and committed relationship with another woman. But this ended just as Rachel went to study at Yale University. Rachel was devastated and extremely angry. One night she was looking at the books on a fellow student's shelf. And one title caught her eye. Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Now, Rachel was an atheist and had never studied Jesus in any way, had imbibed much of the thinking about Jesus from all kinds of other sources. So she stole the book and was captivated by Jesus and surprised by him and the incredible love that he was offering her, offering to save her life and to rule her life. But now the pain entered her heart. She could not have Jesus and same-sex relationships. She couldn't have both. And she was a dilemma in that, and there was pain involved in all of that. But it just so happened that she had a friend studying theology at Yale, so she asked him, and he said, it's all right, he said, because you can have Jesus... And you can have same-sex relationships because the Bible is wrong about same-sex relationships. It's been misinterpreted, you see. Well, Rachel had some temporary relief. But the thing about Rachel was that she read the Bible. So she went back to the Bible, to all the passages that had been referred to. And her conclusion was this. That actually... These passages 
did not allow her to have same-sex relationships. Now there's a problem, isn't there? She comes to the cross now, the crossroads, if you want. Does she turn away and save her same-sex relationships? And lose her life? Or does she turn away from her same-sex relationships and her self-willed living and all the other stuff that was going on and save it by being ruled by the most incredible love that she'd ever actually thought about and encountered? What do you think she did? Hopefully, says somebody, yes, she crossed over into the love of Christ because the love was too great. The love was too great. Jesus is on mission, my friends. And no one is off limits. He's not indifferent. He understands the struggles. But when the pressure comes down upon people who don't know Jesus, are they going to save their life or save their self-willed life and ultimately lose it? Because we all die. Or do, we turn, or do they turn away from their sin, whatever form it is, and cross into the most incredible love that could ever be offered to any human being. What does that have to say to us about mission? Well, it's the same thing, isn't it? I'm under pressure because of Jesus. I'm trying to be wise and uh, wise as a serpent and as innocent as a dove. I'm trying to relate well to people and understand them. There comes a point in that conversation when they have a decision to make, that we have a decision to make. Do we save our lives and retain being well thought of? A nice bloke, if I am, or woman? Or do I lose my life for the gospel? And cross more deeply into the most incredible love that is already in our lives. And overwhelm the fear with this love. Freely we have received. So let us freely give to people who are like sheep without a shepherd. There is nothing more serious to Jesus than that his message, a message of life and eternity, gets out. We must not be, as God's people, camp B, full of indifference because of a nice life. We want people to live forever in Christ's beautiful, forgiving love. So we offer our lives afresh this night and say, keep on sending us out in whatever way is appropriate to our, to our kind of personality and character.
and we will hear in our hearts Christ joyfully saying to the Father, Mine. Let us pray. Take a moment, please.